Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. If you're joining us online, I'm glad you're joining us today. For those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are working through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, Matthew 26 is where we're going to be, uh, Matthew 26. But while we get there, I got a couple quick announcements for you. Uh, the first one is this, is Easter. Easter's coming next week is Easter. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be good. We, we like to celebrate Easter. And uh, we have three service times, 8.30, 10, and 11.30. And so here's basically the big thrust you need to know about Easter service times, about when to be here, is if you show up at a time we currently have service, you're going to interrupt Easter service. Okay, if you show up at 9 or 11, you're going to show up in the middle of a service, 8.30, 10, and 11.30, um, join us. It's going to be awesome. Also, this Friday is Good Friday, um, which uh, for some of you is good just seeing this little thing, Good Friday is April 15th, which is Friday. You might have a little bit of a panic attack and realize you now have five business days to get your taxes done, okay? But... More important than that is our Good Friday service, and so we'd love for you to join us for our Good Friday service. We actually do it as a community-wide event. Um, there's 10 churches that all participate together, and we're going to be joining together at 7 o'clock here in this room at 7 o'clock on Friday. And so I would really love for you to join us. Here's the thing um, that I found for myself. You may not... Um, know this, this may not be for you, but what I found for myself is the more I can sit in the discomfort of Good Friday, the more beautiful and joyous Easter is. And so it's one of the things I've found come to really love about Good Friday service is it's going to be different than any service we do um, normally. We're, we're, um, we're going to sing, we're going to read some scripture, we're going to pray, but we're just going to sit in, in the truth of what we remember in, in Good Friday and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Um, so I'd love for you to join us for that. Uh, we're also going to be broadcasting it so you can join us online um, if you'd like to uh, for the Good Friday service. Then the last thing is this, Easter egg hunt. This Saturday at 11 a.m. Now, you can help in two different ways. You can help by texting the word Monmouth to 97,000, and then you'll get an email um, back that, uh, that will invite you to join us on Saturday at 10 a.m. at Main Street Park to help be part of, um, you know, making everyone's blood sugar spike with 10,000 pieces of candy. And so you can join us with that. Or if you're in the room right now, you can do something else too. You can, as you're leaving, you can take a little detour. You can, you know, you can pause for an extra 15, 20 minutes. There's some donuts out there. If you don't think you're going to make it to lunch without going straight to lunch, you can like grab some donuts so you can keep your energy levels up. And then you can go down our kids' wing. And halfway down our kids' wing, um, on the left-hand side, there's some double doors. It's the only double doors in the kids' wing. And all the way in the back of the room, there's a table with 5,000 pieces of candy. Well, hopefully after first service, there's not 5,000, but thousands of pieces of candy and thousands of eggs that need to miraculously appear inside one another. And so um, you can go down there and help stuff Easter eggs for 15, 20, 30 minutes. Help us get those Easter eggs stuffed for Easter. Okay, here we go. Matthew 26. Um, we're going to look at a story in Matthew 26 that is, um, that, that's unique to the Gospels. And, um, and, and here's what I mean by it. Theologians for 2,000 years have wrestled with how you navigate the balance between Jesus being fully human and Jesus being fully God. 
For 2,000 years, people have tried to come up with language. How how do you, not that Jesus is half God and half human, because we don't believe that. We believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human. And at the center of our faith is that those two realities coexist in a way that our brains can't comprehend. Now, now here's here's what I need you to know before we go into this message today. Um, I am not a theologian. Um, there, uh, I'm, we're all theologians in a very casual sense, okay? But I, I'm not a, a professionally trained, like super smart kind of theologian that's going to have all. So, so he, this reality of Jesus being fully God and being fully man is a thing that even the smartest theologians wrestle to come up with the right words how to describe and how to explain the interaction between the two. And today, what we're going to see in today's story today, is maybe the most transparent expression of Jesus being 100% man. There are a lot of times in scripture, and and we celebrate, and we love, right? Jesus raising the dead, Jesus feeding the 5,000, Jesus healing people, and all these expressions of Jesus's divinity. But today we're going to see maybe the most clear expression of Jesus's humanity, um, there are times in scripture where we see Jesus' humanity. We see Jesus' humanity um, in the story of Lazarus, right? His, his friend dies, he goes to the tomb, all the family's um, weeping, and what, is, what, is Lazarus do? And what does Jesus do? L- Lazarus is dead, he doesn't do anything, okay? Um, Jesus, it says, he weeps, right? He knows as fully God, he knows that in a moment that he's gonna speak and he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead, But in his humanity, in the moment, gathering with people he loves, he mourns the death of someone. We see Jesus' humanity there. We see Jesus' humanity when he he, um, gets angry about things, right? And he he laughs and he rejoices and he celebrates. We see Jesus' humanity. But today's story is is a unique story in that we see it maybe more transparently than at any other time recorded in the Gospels. So... Let's take a look at it. It says this, Matthew 26, if you're following along. Um, oh, it did it again. Verse 26. Uh, you want to go holler at Jason, see if he, Jason or Jared, see if they can fix it again? Um, for now, I'm going to read from this big screen up here. Um, so online, I'm sorry. Uh, here we go. So it says this. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Now look at those words. He began to be grieved and in agony. He began began to um, have this angst inside him. He began to be distressed and in pain, in physical pain because of the reality. Now here, here, um, uh, theologians, commentators have used a lot of different words to try and describe what's going on in Jesus in this moment. But what we see in Jesus is his humanity. Uh, Let me ask you this, okay? Is there anything that's about to happen in Jesus's life that Jesus doesn't know about? The answer is no. Is there anything in Jesus's life that's about to happen that he doesn't know about? No, no, he knows everything. So what's Jesus, 
What's Jesus grieved about? In fact, he's so grieved and he's so distressed that in a moment we're going to see Jesus is going to fall face down in the dirt and, and, and other accounts are going to tell us that he's going to weep and he's going to plead with God. And in fact, it's going to get so intense at one point, one gospel writer tells us that he begins to sweat drops of blood, which is a real medical condition that occurs, that, that can occur when you're under such strain, blood vessels around your hairline begin to burst and the blood seeps out of the pores around your hairline. So it looks like sweat, but it's blood coming out of, and Jesus is in such agony and distress in this moment about what's about to come that he, that he falls on his face and he's distressed and he's grieved and he's, he's, he's tore up inside. It says this, it goes on, it says this. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Now, this isn't really particularly important, but it's an interesting thing to think about, is Jesus, as a good Jew, um, Jesus grew up just um, saturated in the scriptures. And so uh, commentators have pointed out that this actually may be a point in Jesus' life where um, we would say, like, like, Jesus didn't even have the words to express his, his, his pain and agony because this is actually a quote from the Psalms. That Jesus is in, have you been there before, right, in such agony and distress that you don't even have words to articulate the pain that you're experiencing in this moment. And Jesus quotes the psalmist's words that he would have read, he would have sung, he would have, he would have been taught over and over and over again. And tells the disciples, keep watch with him. And he went a little bit beyond them and fell on his face and prayed. Look at that. I mean, just, just okay, okay. I know we're kind of jumping mid-story into this. So this is kind of like um, all of a sudden, this is like if you walk into a room. Right? Have this ever happened to you? Maybe at work, maybe even at home. You walk in the room and you walk in, all of a sudden there's a bunch of people crying. Right? And you're like, uh, what's going on? Right? I know that we're kind of jumping into this moment of Jesus' pain, in it, but look at this. Jesus is in such agony and distress that he falls on his face. He says this. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. So what is going on right? Jesus, fully God. He knows. He's not surprised by the cross. In fact, scripture says that nobody takes his life, that he lays it down, that he chooses to lay it down. For three years, Jesus has been telling people, right? This is, this is where it's going. This is where it's going. Uh, they're going to hand me over. Uh, I'm going to get crucified. I'm going to get, I'm going to be murdered. This is, Jesus knows, but there's a difference. Here's, here's what I want you to see in what's going on in Jesus' body. There is a difference between knowing and knowing. You know what I'm saying? There's a difference between knowing intellectually something and knowing here. Let me give you this illustration. When I was in high school, uh, we went up to Seattle with a youth group and we went on a trip and we went to Wild Waves, right? Been to Wild Waves before? 
Uh, at least as you drive up to Seattle, you drive by Wild Waves. And I assume it's still there, but they had this ride. They called it a pendulum swing ride or something like that. Maybe you've done a smaller version um, at a fair or some other um, place. But, but here's the whole idea behind this ride, okay? Um, they hook you up. This is not actually their ride. This is a different ride because in the ride that I went on, they, um, they put you in this like big blanket, right? And, and they call it a harness, but it's, it's basically like a burrito that they wrap around you. Um, I, was with, I was with, it was me and two other girls, and I told them that it was, um, it was just a body bag. So when things went bad, they just zip us up and ship us off, right? Um, which really settled their souls. And so what, what you do on this pendulum ride is, is you hang down here, and then they pull you back. I don't know if you can see it, but there's this little pole right here. They pull you all the way back to this pole, right? And, and, and I could tell you the statistics about it, right? I could tell you that when they pull you back to this pole, you're like 140 feet in the air, right? 14 stories in the air, right? And I could tell you, as they told you, when, when this happens, you're going to free fall for 90 feet, and then the, the cable's going to catch you. And, and I could tell you statistics like they tell you, like these, these, these pillars, these beams, um, are reinforced to hold up to 10,000 pounds of force, and you don't weigh 10,000 pounds, right? And that the cable that's suspended there is, is designed to be able to take the force of 5,000 pounds free-falling. And you don't weigh 5,000 pounds. And to that I said, you don't know me, right? <laughs> and that nobody's ever been hurt riding this ride. And that they have safety check after safety check. We're wrapped in a burrito that has its cable. And then inside of the burrito, you have your own harness that's connected to a different cable just in case the burrito slash body bag fails. You have your own harness because you have safety check after safety check after safety check. I could tell you all the statistics about riding this ride, but let me tell you, it's something different to hang 140 feet in the air staring straight down a pavement that might be the end of your life at 16 years old wondering... What would they put on my tombstone at 16? Right? There's something totally different between knowing something here and knowing something here. In fact, we got on this ride and they, you know, they have all these warnings and statistics and I'm like, whatever, blah, blah. What a weak generation. We all have to be worried about everybody getting hurt, right? And I get on this thing and they pull you all the way back up 140 feet in the air. And I knew all the things. And you know what's going on in my head? Just sheer panic. I'm up there with two other people. I said there's two girls on each side of me. And if you've ever ridden one of these rides, the, um, the person on the outside has a ripcord that they have to pull because they, they tell you. And I think they're lying. They said, um, for safety, we do not actually have a system to release you once you're up there. You have to pull the ripcord, right? So they pull us all the way up there. And we're hanging up there. And, and you know this, did you know this about um, Seattle? Seattle can be windy. You ever been there? And when you're 140 feet in the air, you know what you are? You're just a flag. And so there's three bodies in a body bag just kind of blowing in the wind, right? And there's a person on the ground who's, by the way, safe and secure on the ground with his feet on the concrete. And this is what he says. He goes, three, two, one, pull. And we just swung in the wind. 
And I go, Becky, you got to pull the ripcord. And this is what she says. I can't do it. Becky, we had this conversation. Like, you got to pull the ripcord. I can't pull the ripcord. You pull the ripcord. I'm, Becky, we're in a body, I mean, a burrito. I can't pull the ripcord. Right? So then I told her this, which turned out to be a really dumb idea because most of the time I talk before I think. And so that's how things work in my world. And so, so I said this. I said, Becky, just close your eyes. Then you won't know you're 140 feet in the air. And here's the thing about it. When you close your eyes, you're hanging 140 feet in the air. Um, you don't know if you're 140 feet in the air, but you also don't know if you're actually falling to the ground. And so the panic, just like, I was like, that's a really bad idea. And we stood there. And again, three, two, one, pull. <laughs> I can't do it. And then she just, tears begin to drop. And then the thing about tears dropping 140 feet is you realize 140 feet is a long ways to the ground because it takes a long time for those tears to hit the pavement. Right? Three, two, one. Nothing. The guy, the guy yells up, you got to pull the ripcord. I go, Becky, you got it. And then she pulls the ripcord and then we fell. <laughs> right? <laughs> there is something different between knowing a thing and knowing a thing. And Jesus is not surprised by anything that's about to come, about to happen. But in the moment, when the moment comes, even Jesus, fully human, fully man, is overwhelmed. And he falls on his face and he pleads with the Lord. There's got to be another way. You got to make this happen differently. So what is it that Jesus is so overwhelmed by? Well, look at what he says. It says this, saying, my father, if it's possible... Let this cup pass from me. Now, um, in, in English, in our culture, this is what we think Jesus is just saying. We just think this is kind of like an imagery for a thing, right? Like, let this cup, let this experience. But in ancient uh, Jewish thought, in, in, in the world that Jesus grew up in, this imagery had a very clear connection. The Old Testament talks often about the cup, and it's almost exclusively one expression. When Jesus says this, Jesus bathed in the Hebrew scriptures, knows exactly the image that he's eliciting, that he's expressing here. Let this cup pass from me. It's this. Um, let me take you over to Jeremiah. There's a lot of passages about it, but this one's really good and helpful. Um, Jeremiah 25, it says this. For thus, the Lord, for, for thus the Lord, the God of Israel says to me, take this cup, right? Here, here we go, right here. Here's the image. This, this, is what, this is what Jesus is talking about. Take this cup of the wine of wrath. So the vast majority of time throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, when you're talking about a cup as an image of something, the cup is the, is the image of the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God. Now, What's interesting about the wrath of God is a lot of times when we hear the word, the wrath of God, what Jesus is overwhelmed by, falls on his face, is, is weeping, is pleading with God to change it, is sweating blood, all of these things, the wrath of God, a lot of times what we think about is like, um, like lightning bolts and earthquakes and, and, and destruction, right? And that's true. There are times in scripture where that's the way God expresses his wrath, but those are um, statistically rare. That's not the vast majority of what it means to experience the wrath 
of God. In fact, um, our image of that is much more uh, wrapped up in Greek and Roman mythology of the gods that would war and their violence would explode into creation and we'd experience all that kind of stuff that has no place in Scripture. Instead, when Jesus is talking, when Scripture is talking about the wrath of God, it's, it's this. Look at this. It's such a perfect image. It's such a perfect illustration. Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand. Here's the other thing you have to know about imagery in the Old Testament. Wine, um, I don't know what your relationship or your family's relationship with alcohol is, but in, in the Hebrew scriptures, wine is almost always a sign of goodness and God's blessing. And, and here's why, here's why. Um, when you live in a sustenance culture, when you only eat what you, when you only eat if you make money that day, when you only have enough for that day to feed yourself and your family, if if you have enough grapes left over to let rot, right, which is what wine is, just like smashing them up and letting them rot, like that is a kind of excess and abundance that is exceptional, right? And so to have wine is to say that God has sustained you in excess for an extended period of time, right? Most of the time, wine is a good thing. And yet, Jesus' uh, scripture in the Old Testament takes and melds these two things together. Because look at this. Take this cup, right? This is what Jesus is talking about. That he says is full of the wine of wrath. Because you see, here's, here's the thing. Um, most of the time for us, when we think about the wrath of God, we think about like violence against us. But the truth is that most often in scripture, the wrath of God is actually God letting us have what we, des- what we think we so desire. Paul talks about the beginning of Romans, and he, and he talks about the wrath of God being revealed on creation, and you know what he tells them the wrath of God looks like? Just letting them have what they want. Let it, letting them have all that they want, all the excess, and this is the image that, that Jeremiah gives us of God, who's taking the, all your desires, all you want, all the comfort, all the freedom, all the independence, all the, the, the pleasures of this world, all the gifts of God's goodness and creation, his creativity, you want all these things, you just, you just have them. And that the overwhelming abundance of all the things that we think that we want, when, when God lets us, when, when God ceases his chasing of us and he lets us have everything that we want, you know what we lose out on? We lose out on him who is the one who gives breath and life to all things. All the things that we think that we want are animated and held together by him alone. And so when he, God's greatest wrath is to let you have what you want. In fact, the greatest, the, the, the first great act of God's mercy comes in the garden. You remember in the garden? They rebel, and what they think they want is to, be, is to be kings of creation. What they think they want is to be lords over themselves. And it is only God's grace and mercy that he does not let them have fully what they want. But it is only his mercy and his grace that he sustains them because what they want is their full independence from him. And over and over again in, 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 in the Hebrew scriptures, it talks about this cup of wrath of, of all these things of death and destruction and decay and darkness that will consume us and destroy us. And God's great wrath to, to people and to the nations is, is when he lets us have what we want. 
But in the cross, in the garden, what Jesus sees in front of him, what he knows is to come, is Jesus is going to take on all that we think we want, which is death and decay and destruction and addiction and brokenness. He's going to take on all of these things on our behalf. It says this. He came to his disciples, and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, So, you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time, right? Jesus is gonna, we're, Jesus is gonna pray three times. And um, numbers mean things in scripture, not in like, so like some secret code, but they mean something But because in ancient Near Eastern cultures, um, numbers meant things. And so three is actually a number of completion, of fullness, Right? Um, so there's a reason that um, Peter rejects Jesus three times. Jesus, in this example, Jesus goes to pray three times. We speak of the Godhead as the Trinity, as three parts. Anytime you see three, Jonah's in the whale for three days. Jesus is in the tomb for three days. The fullness, it's, it's an important imagery. And so Jesus is going to go pray the second time. And this is what he says, okay? My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Now, this is a different prayer, isn't it? Something changed in Jesus between the first prayer and this prayer. Jesus fully, man, came overwhelmed. One, one commentator, one modern commentator, he actually even said that um, if we were to use modern language to describe what was going on in Jesus, we might use the, the phrase that Jesus was having a panic attack. That he was just so overwhelmed by the realities that are to come. He falls on his face and he weeps and he prays and he pleads and he says, God, there's got to be a different way. Please, any other way. Do this any other way than this way. But his second prayer, look, look, it's different. His second prayer is different. It says this. If this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. If this can't pass away. Now, now. What's the, what's the only other way that this passes? The only way this passes is if we can drink it. If we take on the fullness of our rebellion, if we take on the responsibility of the guilt that we've consumed on ourselves, Jesus is no longer concerned. You see this? Jesus is no longer concerned with the weight that he will take on in, in the consequences of our sin. Jesus is no longer afraid, nervous, worried about the, the cup that he's about to drink. His concern now is that we don't drink it. The good news of the gospel, the incredible news of the gospel is, well, scripture says this way. It says um, that, uh, that he endured the cross for the joy set before him. Jesus, in this moment, knows everything that's going to happen. He feels in the very depths of his bones all the agony and pain that he is going to take on himself, that he is going to drink all the rebellion and sin that we deserve. He's going to take all the wrath of God himself. He feels all that. And yet, for the joy set before him, he endures the cross. You know what the joy set before him was? It was you. It was me. It was us. It was reconciliation. It was restoration. It was, it was God making all things right. This is Jesus' second prayer is, 
as if, if, the, if the only way that there's reconciliation is for me to drink this, then, then, then let's do this. Then let's go. Something changes in us when we purposely pursue the presence of God in prayer. Here's the truth of prayer, okay? Um, our prayers will rarely change our circumstances. It's just the statistical reality. Our prayers will rarely change our circumstances. But our purposeful pursuit of God, he will change our hearts. Just because Jesus, perfect and unblemished, prays that God would do something different, you know what God does? The same thing. But he bolsters and strengthens and transforms Jesus in, in his fully humanness. He bolsters and strengthens his spirit. That he goes from God, there's got to be another way. Please make there another way. I don't want to do this. I want this to be to saying, your will be done. Let's do this. Prayer. Maybe, 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 maybe you're going to see it. Maybe you're going to spare it. I, I believe that it can happen. Maybe you're going to pray something and God is going to miraculously and amazingly touch that thing and he's going to change that. And, and that's going to be amazing and we're going to rejoice and that's going to be awesome. But you know what? The vast majority of time you're going to pray for something, that thing's still going to happen. But in our purposeful pursuit of God in prayer, he begins to transform and change our hearts that we might endure the things that he's called us and set before us that we might with faithfulness endure in hardship. You, you see, here, here's the reality. Life is hard. Life is painful and broken and difficult, and it's probably not going to get markedly better. Like even if, if we just look at your body, right? Like, like just, look at, just take an account of your body. Um, how many of you, how many of you who are older than 40, um, feel physically better than you did when you were in your 20s? Somebody laughed. Because <laughs> it's not, like, things break down. Things decay. We live in a world consumed by brokenness and decay that the world we are around us, Scripture tells us, is groaning in agony. The longer you live, the longer you live, the more pain we will experience and endure. The longer we live, the more heartache we will experience and endure. But in our purposeful pursuit of God in prayer, he will begin to, to change and transform and strengthen. He here's the thing. For most of us, most of us, our prayer life never goes past Jesus' first prayer. God, fix this. God, change this. God, God, get rid of this. God, move this. God, this job, I, I, I hate being married. God, I hate being single. I hate having kids. I hate not having kids. God, I hate not having money. God, I hate having too much money. God, I hate this. I hate this. Fix this, fix this, fix this. And our prayers rarely move past Jesus' first prayer. But it is in the pursuit of God that he begins to transform, redeem, and restore. You see, when our prayers never go past the first prayer, it's called vending machine theology. Show up, God, I'm going to put in my prayer coins. I'm going to remind you of all the good things I did, and you're going to... 
you're going to drop it out for me, right? But in the kind of prayer that we see in our Savior, the kind of prayer that we see modeled all throughout Scripture is a kind of prayer that is pursuing God so that he might redeem and restore and transform. You see, um, we do this thing called Rooted. It's awesome. If you haven't done Rooted, you should sign up. You should do Rooted. You can learn more by texting Mom with 97,000. But when we do Rooted, one of the things that we do in Rooted is this prayer experience. And, um, and maybe... Maybe, maybe you'll do a prayer experience and, and, and it'll be awesome and God will heal someone, right? Maybe you'll do a prayer experience and, and, and there'll be something like that's massively busted and broken in a way that nobody else can describe. God will redeem and restore. God will heal that broken relationship or that thing. You know what happens more often? I remember sitting in a prayer experience and a woman began to share with us all the pain and heartache she'd experienced in her life. And how she carried bitterness and anger towards God because she constantly wondered if God is good and he's able, why has he not done anything about this? And when she sat in prayer, and it's this three-hour-long experience we go through as she sat in prayer, here's what God began to transform and shape in her. God began to show her in those moments every single time that he was there with her. He, he began to show her that she could see and be reminded that he is good and he's faithful even in the midst of heartache. Jesus' prayers... Don't change the agony he's about to experience. It prepares his heart to endure the pain he's going to. Church, each one of us are going to experience agony and pain and heartache. And if we are not a people who are purposely pursuing prayer, we will not have the strength to endure. In fact, just this Tuesday, it just happens to fall in the calendars we're going through. This Tuesday, we're having our regular prayer gathering. It's Tuesday night. You can join us here. And maybe God will heal or redeem or restore, or maybe he'll just begin to transform your heart and begin to give you the strength to endure the things he's called you to, the hard and painful things that he's called you to. So the good news, the gospel the good news that we rejoice in is not that God is going to make life easy, but that all the suffering and the wrath of God that we deserve, Jesus took and drank willingly on our behalf. And so may we be a people. May we be a people who passionately pursue God that he might redeem and restore and transform and give us strength and courage to endure the hard things he's called us to walk through.